This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. All of a sudden, the plane sort of veers right into the grass and it hit a berm and the plane started to go over and it did. It just went straight over, tail over nose and ended up upside down on the grass. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today, we're delighted to welcome back our inaugural guest on the There I Was podcast, three-time U.S. Aerobatic National Champion, Patty Wagstaff. Patty, thank you for joining us again, and uh, we're delighted to have you back on the podcast. Thanks, Richard. It's great to be back. You're doing a great job with this podcast, so I'm, I'm uh, thrilled to be back. Thank you. Well, great, and, and thanks to people like you. They're so willing to share your uh, circumstances and your situations with all of us so that we can learn from them. You had a recent incident on your birthday of all days. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And you reached out to us to want to share the story about what happened and the lessons learned that came out of that. So uh, do you mind sharing that with us today? Exactly. Yeah, it was my birthday. It was 9-11, and it was my birthday. So all in all, not such a great day. It's it's a tough birthday anymore. Yeah. 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 <laughs> It's kind of an emotional day anyway. So um, so this was when my Bonanza um, was wrecked and had an accident in my Bonanza of all things. Um, I've never had an airplane accident before. I've had a few prop dings and things like that for sure, but um, that I'll, I'll own up to everything. But I've never had a real accident. And just to back it up very, very slightly... Before I started flying, I was in an accident in a Cessna 206 in Alaska when I first started flying small airplanes up there or flying in small airplanes. And the airplane had um, flipped upside down at the end of the runway. We didn't get off the runway and the pilot didn't use the full length of a muddy runway and so so on and so forth. So I had been upside down on the ground in an airplane before. You know, of course, those kind of things really stick with you. And um, so that actually comes into play in this incident. Yeah, and people should know, they probably don't know you for Bonanza flying, but you fly a 1958K model Bonanza that you have flown for a while now uh, in between your aerobatic events, which you're known so well for, right? Yeah, it's been a great little plane to get around in. It's a, as you said, it's a K model. Um, it was um, I bought it in 19, in 2012, and before that I'd had Cirruses and, and Barons. 
And uh, this was the first V-tail that I'd had, and I, re I really liked it. Um, great little airplane. It was fast and comfortable, and so we miss it. Yeah. Now, is the airplane going to be repairable, or I might be cutting to the chase here? No. Oh, the airplane's total. Yeah. It's in Sorry to hear that. Now. So, it was 60 years old, so there was a lot, got a lot out of it, you know, for many years. A lot of, a lot of people enjoyed it. And I understand you were flying with an old friend of mine, uh, Jeff Rochelle, a former uh, Air Force Thunderbird pilot. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. He's one of our instructors, and he's a good friend. And um, so you were on different years. I think you were you were quite a bit later right, than him right. on the team. Yeah, yeah. Meaning, meaning, I'm much younger than he is. I think that's what you meant by that. <laughs> I'll make sure to pass that on. <laughs> okay, yeah. So uh, he's an instructor in your aerobatic school down there in St. Augustine. He is. He instructs for us both in aerobatics and in upset training. And he also went with us to Kenya this year to give training to the Kenya Wildlife Service. Oh, wow. Fantastic. And so you guys were, were you coming back? Were you out on a training uh, sortie or can you set the stage for us? What kind of flight was this? Sure. So this was a, we were at a meeting in Titusville um, about upset training and the weather was nice, no problems. And uh, we, as we got in the plane to leave, Jeff said, hey, um, why don't I fly? And I said, well, you know, it's the left seat's a little tricky. It's an old plane. There's some little things I want to show you. And I said, it's it's getting late. I'll just fly this time. Next time, I'll put you in the left seat because he hadn't actually flown this airplane before. And also, there's no brakes on the right seat. There's rudder pedals, but they were stowed. And I just didn't want to deal with, with all that. And he goes, okay. So I jumped in the left seat, put on my seatbelt, and... And we took off and flew back. It was about a 40-minute flight back to St. Augustine. Yeah, so important for people to know that the Bonanza in this model of VTAIL Bonanza, it has the throwover yoke, and it also has the rudder pedals that you can stow. So the idea was the person in the right seat, if you don't want them to, has no ability to control the airplane whatsoever. You take the yoke out of the way, you stow the rudder pedals, and it's just a nice, comfortable seat for them. And that's how you had it configured for this flight. Right. Exactly. And I certainly wasn't worried about Jeff flying the airplane. I just didn't want to have to deal with right. the, the little checkout. It's got a, it's got these older V-tails have um, these, they call them piano keys. And that's what controls the flaps and the gear and the reverse from the newer airplanes. So even a highly experienced pilot like Jeff needs a checkout on how that works. And it's a little awkward to operate those from the right seat. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So it's a, little, it's a different airplane, for sure, these these older planes. Um, and you have to be very careful not to go back to muscle memory with a new plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I jumped in the left seat. We flew back. Um, everything was uneventful. It was nice weather. The traffic pattern was – there was nobody in the pattern when we got back to St. Augustine. And we were cleared to land. We landed – I landed a little bit long because my hangar is down at the far end of uh, runway 13, sort of to the south. We touched down on the center line, and um, everything was very relaxed and fine. And I was rolling out. I had about half flaps on, and we were rolling out. I hadn't applied brakes yet. I was very careful with that airplane. It's an older plane, and I never honked on the brakes or, you know, applied them really hard. Sure, yeah. Does it have the old Goodyear brakes, or, or had it been upgraded to Cleveland brakes? It has Cleveland brakes, but I never wanted to put a lot of side load on the gear when I'm yeah, taxiing sure. off. So. Yeah. Um, so just rolling out, and all of a sudden the plane 
sort of veers right into the grass, and Jeff and I looked at each other. I, I grabbed the yoke and pulled it back, and Jeff and I looked at it. He said, it's going into the grass. I'm like, I said, check the power, because I had my hands full holding the yoke back, and he checked the, he put his hand on the throttle to make sure it was at idle. And meanwhile, I tried to steer it with the brakes, or the, I'm sorry, with the rudder pedals, and I got nothing. I couldn't move them. Mm. Um, I thought I was just about to slow down, and it hit a berm, a small berm, you know, you wouldn't, one of those in the grass that you wouldn't know was there. And the plane started to go over and we looked at each other and he said, it's going over. And it did. It just went straight over, tail over nose and ended up upside down on the grass. Sounds like it just happened so quickly. It was quick. And um, it was, of course, really surprising. And just, you know, I mean, you just, you're in disbelief for a few moments, you know, just can't believe this actually happened. That's aviation sometimes, right? There you are on a typical normal landing, everything's fine, you're slowing down to exit the runway, and next thing you know, the airplane starts veering to the right, you run off the runway, you're upside down in, in a matter of probably less than a minute or two when all that happened. Oh, it was probably just, you know, 30 seconds, I'm guessing, 20 seconds, yeah. something like that. And I remember somebody saying to me a long time ago, you know, when accidents happen, they happen very quickly. It's not something you can prepare for ahead of time. Yeah, of course you can prepare everything you can for you know the in a, you know the worst. But when it actually happens, you're not going to have time to organize things. You know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so as the plane was, and you guys realized we're going over. Did you have time to do anything there, or just no, brace for impact? You or? couldn't do anything. You just had to brace. So a couple of things that were uh, interesting. One. The seatbelts are older, and the shoulder harnesses are um, a later addition to the plane. They didn't come with shoulder harnesses in the initially. And our shoulder harnesses were the kind of crisscross kind that weren't on an inertial reel. We had been wanting to change it, but we had the older kind. So that when they were on, they were a little tight, and it was awkward to reach forward and change fuel, uh, switch fuel tanks and do some other things. So what I normally would do is take off with the shoulder harness on and um, then take it off in the air when I get up to altitude so I could switch tanks and, and things like that and then fly without the shoulder harness. And a lot of times I have to say I didn't put it on for landing even though I know I should. A lot of times I did, but there were times I didn't. In this case, because it was a really short flight from Titusville and I knew I didn't have to switch tanks, because there's some t fuel management in these older planes, I left my shoulder harness on, which was a little unusual for me. Hmm. If I hadn't left my shoulder harness on, I probably would have gotten hurt. Yeah. And Jeff had a shoulder harness on too, so we were really lucky with that. So we had our shoulder harnesses on, we were upside down, and I looked over and said, are you okay? And I remembered being upside down in that Cessna 206 in 1980, maybe two. Hmm. Um, no, it was earlier than that. It was probably 1979. And, and I remembered the pilot saying, be careful, be careful, don't hurt yourself when you get out because there's been a lot of, I think there's been a lot of injuries for people when they get upside down, they rip off their seatbelt and they hit their head. And so I said, okay, be careful. And I remembered it. So it's amazing how these things are, they stay with you, you know? Yeah. So... He said, I'm okay, and we carefully undid our belts, and we sort of fell to the ceiling of the airplane, and we were the plane had been smashed, so it was compressed. So I assume you had a prop strike, and that, cut, that shut the engine off? Everything was shut off, and my overriding thought was, get out, just get out. And mm -hmm. 
Um, I thought of friends who hadn't gotten out and who yeah. had, you know, been in a fire, and I just kept thinking of that, and it was really terrifying. So he tried to kick the door. So I'm on the left side where there's no door, and he's on the right side. And he went to push it open. It didn't come open, and and he said, "Let's get the mags and the master off." So when you're upside down and everything, so everything in the plane had fall. You know, I keep a really sterile cockpit. Mm-hmm. Very, and I'm, I pick on other people when I see that they have junk in their plane, and I talk to my students about it, and I'm very, very conscientious of not having a lot of junk floating around or water bottles or anything. But everything in the plane was all over the place. It was all over us. It was up, you know, everything had been like the flight bag that was way in the back, and the things in the map case, batteries and notebooks, and um, there were these pop-up sunshades and things that you didn't, didn't even know were in there was everywhere. And so we're trying to find the mags and the master, but when you're sort of facing, you're sort of backwards and you're upside down and they were kind of hard to find actually. Yeah. So you had to look up and I had to find one of the instruments and follow it with my finger back to where I thought the master was. And so we got those off and then Jeff started kicking the door to get it open. I'm like, get out, get us out of here. And we were smashed in there, kind of jammed in there, and, and he's trying as hard as he can. He said, I can't I can't get this thing open. We're not going to get out of here. And um, the sunshades that I used, it was a hot day, and the sunshades that I had had popped open. I put them behind the seat, but they had popped open, sort of blocking our view of the back of the plane. And I reached up, and I moved one of them, and I saw the emergency exit was accessible. So I said, there, you can get, we can get out that way. So he pulled the pin, pushed out the window, and we kind of shimmied our way out of there. Man, how long do you estimate it took you to do all that, Patty, from the time you're upside down, you realize it, you unbuckle, and you exit the airplane? You know, I'm guessing 90 seconds. Um, It could have been a little bit longer. You know, one of the things on that that's really important is that we had used the rear emergency windows. We had used those windows for photo work. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, I think we did one of the shoots for AOPA. Um, Bruce Moore flew this airplane for AOPA for for a magazine article, and it was a really good camera platform. So when we first took out the emergency windows, they were really stiff. I don't think they'd ever been opened. The pins were hard to get out. Everything was, you know, kind of stiff on them. So we had lubed them, and we'd take them out a few times. So when he went to pull the pin, it was really easy to get out. And so one of the things I would say, and I could make sort of list these things later, but if you have an emergency window in your plane, which no doubt you do, or an emergency exit, use it. You know, go and test it. Make sure that it's easy to open. Make sure that it's been lubed and open it a few times. And don't wait until you have an emergency. Hey, listeners. Do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year? and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force. AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. And what's your thinking about carrying some kind of a, like, canopy breaker tool or windshield breaker tool for people that may not have an emergency exit? I think it's a great idea, especially if you're, if you're alone. I could have been alone in the plane. And I have one that Bud Davison made a number of years ago. He was, he was marketing these just beautiful kind of escape knives. But I always kept it in the extra. But I never thought to keep it in a bonanza. Mm-hmm. It just wouldn't yeah. have occurred to me. 
And now I'm, my thinking has changed. Now I think everybody should have something like that. Yeah, I fly a, a 1950 Navion. It's been in our family for 30 years or more. And um, Navions have the same issue when they have an off-airport landing, and you don't even have to be upset in it. Just an off-airport landing will tend to bend that canopy frame enough where you can't slide the canopy back. And several people have told me that um, you think you're going to kick that window out, think again, because it takes an incredible amount of pressure to do that. Since then, I, I carry a, a little canopy breaker tool with me. It's a great idea. I think they should be standard in every airplane. The other thing we didn't have in there, which I've had in a lot of planes, is a fire extinguisher. We didn't have to use it, thank God, because the wings, it didn't breach the fuel tanks because it was mostly tail over nose. But I was really afraid of fire. And if I'd had a fire extinguisher up in the close to me in the front seat, kind of, you know, not just sitting there, but, you know, you really have to have it secured, um, I would have felt a lot more comfortable knowing that I'd had that. Yeah, you know what? It makes me think that I have one that sits right between the seats and the Navion, but it's not secured to the floor. It kind of sits in this little little holder. And hearing you talk about how everything's just in disarray when you're upside down and even the simplest things aren't so easy to find anymore because your reference is so different, it makes me think I, I may need to rethink how I've got that thing secured. I think it should be secured and, you know, like with a latch that you can just pop open because it will, it can end up in the tail. Our telephone, my phone ended up, um, it was really hard to get. We had to climb up inside the panel, up into the instruments and in the back of the instrument panel to, to get my phone out. It was jammed between like an airspeed and, a, you know, something else indicator. Mm. Things went everywhere. Things were in places you would never expect them to be. You weren't going that fast, were you? Jeff thinks we were probably going about 50 because we touched down, you know, probably 75 to 80. And then we were about halfway to rolling out. And you really hadn't even started your turnoff yet. And then it just veered right off the runway and then turned pretty much straight over or kind of on an angle or? It turned to the right. And then it, when it hit this berm, it went almost straight over, almost mm. over nose. And when I called the tower afterwards, they said they saw white smoke coming out just before we veered off. So they were watching the whole thing. So they saw it. And we ha I have a picture of the tire. It's kind of the smoking gun where you can see this big, it's all the way down to the tread where it locked up. And so is that what caused the, the sort of out of control uh, status there on the one way is a, a locked up uh, tire on the right it's side? A locked break. And we don't know why. We've, we've examined everything. Um, the NTSB still has some of the parts and they're looking at them. So we're not sure why. But I've heard of this happening in some other Bonanzas. Hmm. Um, and one of the spec, it's only speculation, but one of the possibilities is that something, and I don't use the parking brake, but that the parking brake valve somehow locks up in there. There's some, there has been some precedent for that. And so there really wasn't much you could do when you have a, a brake that locks up like that. Uh, there's really not much you can, you can do there. You know, it's funny, you know, I've heard the old brake lock and I am sure I've been just as bad as everybody else where you go, Oh yeah, right. You know, it's hard to believe and you think people are making excuses for it, but it actually does happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? And and when it happens, it's very fast, and it's it's not controllable at that point. So, you know, if we'd gone into a taxiway where there's no berm or anything, it probably would have just slowed down and and so on. We just happened to hit this this berm, but it does happen, and when it happens, it's very fast. So, 
wow, what a, what a quick incident to happen. Everything's going fine, and then suddenly that to deal with. So we're thankful you're okay. Sorry that's the way you Thank chose you. to celebrate your birthday. Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> what a birthday. <laughs> what other lessons learned did you think through it, Patty, that the rest of us can take uh, from your incident? There were a number of things. I, one of the things is that we were just talking about, don't second guess when people have an accident and an incident. It's going to make it a lot worse. I, You know, people kind of snicker, oh, yeah, the old, you know, locked break, you know, excuse kind of thing. Well, you know, and I've heard of, after this happened, you know, both the NTSB and the FAA talked to me about some incidences similar to this, and they said they couldn't find the cause, and the pilot said the brake lock, but nobody believed them. And, you know, it's a very good chance that something did go wrong. So don't make assumptions. And mm -hmm. it's we all do. You know, that's just being an armchair expert, and we're really not. Until you're in the cockpit, you really don't know what happened. And there's a little story I have. I was at Oshkosh uh, a number, you know, number of years, probably 15 years ago. And I was sitting with a couple of friends and we were at the air show tent. Um, and it was a quiet part of the day. And um, we were kind of laughing about an incident. There was a pilot that's kind of well known. They always, you know, we thought they did, you know, stupid things and we were making fun of them. And Paul Poperesny happened to drive up in his, you know, red one VW bug. And he was out and Paul was walking around near us, picking up little pieces of trash as he used to do. He was wonderful. And um, so I, now I pick up pieces of trash because I always think of him. But Paul came over to us and he heard it. He overheard us and said, you know, you never know until you're in the cockpit. And he gave us a, a little kind, but, you know, lecture, but a kind lecture about don't make assumptions. And we all got very quiet and I'll never forget that you know that was a really really big lesson coming from somebody like him that's seen everything and yeah. flown a lot of planes and he was right I don't know what assumptions people made about this but I just think it's really important that we don't make assumptions well we're glad you're okay sorry you lost your uh, your bonanza thank you uh, there's another really important part of this that I want to yeah. talk about if that's okay yeah please so when we were in the plane upside down I I kept ex expecting to see car tires drive up or truck tires and, you know, thinking, oh, somebody's going to be here any second, even though the tower watched this. And there were people at the airport. It was early and it was only 530. Um, we have an FBO. We have a tower. We have Northrop Grumman uh, has a huge facility. And we have a sheriff's department, which is just a few doors away from where it happened. They have helicopters and sheriffs on duty all the time. You know, we got out of the plane and we stood there and nobody came for eight minutes. We stood there for eight minutes total. Hmm. The whole thing. And nobody came to our um, came out there at all. The FBO wasn't notified. The sheriff, Northrop Grumman, nobody was called. The tower did what their protocol is, which is to call 911. Well, that's about four or five miles away from the airport with the uh, you know, fire department is. Mm -hmm. And apparently, because I, I talked to the airport authority after this, apparently they, they got there in four minutes, which is still a long time, and they didn't have their gate card. Mm. So they had to wait another four minutes for the airport authority, you know, director or whatever, deputy guy to come and let them in. So, you know, I could have been inside there bleeding. There was a lot of glass around. I, you know, we could have been on fire. Nobody came. It was pretty unbelievable. I'm still just astounded there were people in hangers there were a couple there were two hangar parties going on i think it was a friday night mm. and uh nobody came out to us 
It was just unbelievable. I mean, I don't care what the rules are. If I see something like that, I'm, go- I'm going out to help. So it's interesting on the airport responses. It sounds like their system is set up to where the tower is going to call 911 because there is no emergency response capability on your airport. Is that right? There's not. But we have an FBO just, you mm-hmm. know, a few seconds away with pickup trucks and so yeah. on. Northrop Grumman has their own fire equipment, but none of them were called. And so I, you know, I'm addressing it with the airport, and I think it's really important for people to know, what's your emergency plan? Because mm-hmm. I've talked to other people since, and they said they've had incidents where nobody came out to help them. They were just sitting there on their own. You know, it's something I might bring up to uh, to Mike Genter, who is our vice president of, uh, of local and uh, airport advocacy. And it might be something interesting for our airport support network to think about and to think about for each of their airports, the kind of what-if scenario. Uh, what, what if because something will happen. Yeah. yeah. If you're out there at the airport and you see this happen, what are you going to do? What can you do? That's something interesting for us to look into. Right. And especially if there's a tower and they see it, they saw the whole thing. Um, and I said, well, why didn't, you know, if I'd been in the tower, I would have jumped in my car if nobody was going out there. And because there's more than one person up there and it was a quiet day. There wasn't any. And plus the airport gets shut down right away anyway. The excuse I got, not from the tower, but by one of the airport authority people was that, well, there's union rules. And I said, well, that's not satisfactory. You know, <laughs> that's like, so bureaucracy trumps rescuing people. Hmm. It's not a good, it's a pretty bad indictment of our system. So we want to make sure the responders are exercising this uh, capability so that, for example, they know the gate codes or the gate card is up to date at the time. So, you know, the fact that it took them to get there and then they had to wait almost twice that long, another four minutes to get through the gate. Yeah. And is there an emergency way for them to get in some kind of a code? Because apparently they forgot their gate pass. So if you mm. forget it, yeah. right, and it's not something they get called out on every day. And, you know, I'm sure they feel bad about it, but it's it's not satisfactory because now everybody has all the, you know, we have all these gates. So it's it's causing a lot of problems. But I think it should be addressed. And I think people need to really think about it. Yeah, it is. It is. It's just like any kind of emergency procedure. You don't use it very much, and the time you're going to need to use it will come up without warning. And so, for that, that's the reason why you exercise all that stuff. Either you actually go through it, or if you can't do that, you run through a tabletop scenario, thinking through all the little issues that can go wrong and how you're going to overcome them. So, that's good advice. I think we'll pass it on to our airport advocacy group for something to uh, to think about. Great. I hope you do. That was one of the main reasons I wanted to talk about this. And um, and I have one more thing. I want to remind people, don't forget to increase your insurance when you redo your avionics or you buy a new prop. Mm. <laughs> Tell us about that. Because we didn't do it. Um, my chief instructor here at the school is a partner in the plane. He bought into the plane uh, a year and a half ago or two, and we upgraded the – we did it. Sarasota Avionics did a beautiful job upgrading the avionics in this plane, and uh, and then we bought a new prop for it for Christmas. So, you know, we had another 50000 in it, and uh, we forgot to upgrade the insurance. Mm. So I just want to remind people, don't forget to do that. If you increase the value of your airplane or put money in it, it's very easy to forget and it's easy to think, oh, nothing's going to happen. Right. Yeah. That's, that's good advice. Yeah. <laughs> that's something I won't forget, you know, live and learn, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Expensive lesson there. <laughs> very expensive lesson. Those are the main things. Um, you know, don't make assumptions. 
be prepared and have a fire extinguisher, have a knife cutter, or a, a you know canopy escape tool. Wear your shoulder harness when you land, uh, even if it's not an inertial reel. I was very lucky that I had it on. Know your emergency airport emergency plan, and don't forget to increase your insurance when you increase the value of your airplane. There's some really good advice by three-time U.S. aerobatic champion Patty Wagstaff. And uh, Patty, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, and uh, fly safe. Thank you, Richard. I really appreciate it. Well, once again, we see just how quickly accidents can happen in aviation, and so it's that old adage that the flight's not over until you shut down and put the airplane in the hangar. And that's certainly something that Patty Wagstaff just experienced. Some great lessons learned that we can all think about and apply to our flying and our cockpit organization and the way we've equipped our airplanes. We're just glad that she's okay and back in the air already. Thanks for joining us on another edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue them and our other important safety work, please consider a donation at aopafoundation.org. That's aopafoundation.org slash donate. And help us continue our important work to advance general aviation safety. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. Thank you.